0: I invite you to pray with me as we begin. Our gracious God, as we enter into this room from places of great unsettling life circumstances, possibly grief for some of us or sadness, and others of us come with joy and happiness, some of us come knowing what we believe, others come really questioning it. We might sit here thank- more thankful to you for answered prayers than we've ever been, or we might come not even really knowing how to pray, and wondering if we should be here at all. And so from all these different places, we're looking now to, uh, to you and, and hoping that there's some connection. So please connect. Please come. Please speak to us, because we're more of a mess than we want other people here to know. And this story that we open up each week tells us something that we need to hear, that we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined we have so much difficulty even if we've heard that message to believe it and to live like it's true would you help us we pray in jesus name amen there's this movie that i remember from my childhood i remember watching it and it comes from a book so you might have heard of it have you heard of the never-ending story yeah yeah a few people have heard of that cool uh movie version or book version movie yeah yeah i think something about the just the idea of a giant dragon sized puppy dog that could fly that that you'd get to ride on and go wherever you wanted and he had this soft gentle voice i think the the dog's flying dog's name was falcor or something there's all these images in this movie that were just wonderful as a child a giant snail that you could ride a giant talking rock creature made of rocks that would also i think just eat rocks not surprisingly and so all these great images, but what, I, what, what was most fascinating about this story, and it goes back to an old German um, uh, fantasy book for children, is that at some point as this main character, Bastian is reading this story, he's up in an attic and he's reading the never-ending story, and at some point he has to shut the book in shock and surprise and he's wide-eyed because he just realized that the people in the story are calling to him and saying his name, and he is a part of the story, and he, and, and, and this is beyond him. He can't understand, but then as he you know opens it back up, he begins to actually be a character in the story, and there's this uh, way that he moves into this story that he thought was just something he was reading. In many ways, as we begin this series on... Uh, back to the basics we're looking at the big story of the Bible the big story of the Christian faith and that's a great analogy because that is what we find to be true if you begin to walk down the journey of this Christian faith at some point you realize that you're not just looking in from the outside but the story has you in it it's a story that um, in many ways this is what I go back to personally in terms of what's so resonating for me about the Christian faith and about the story of Jesus is that it explains me better than any other story that I find myself at home in this story better than it in, in any other story or philosophy or explanation for human life. So that's what we're inviting you into during this um, series. And I wanted to explain that I'm, I'm taken from a few different books that I'll be hitting and drawing from throughout this um, four-week series. And I've got four of them here. And they all deal with this kind of the big picture the big story of the christian faith today i won't be drawing so much from this one but it's a really helpful one called simply christian by N. T. wright Um, this one's called creation regained by albert walters and this one's called the true story of the whole world by craig bartholomew and michael goheen and this one is leslie newbegin a walk through the bible And uh, you know, if you wanted to go further on things with this this series, those are some great books that um, that you can find. And so, if we go with uh, Leslie Newbegin, this is how he begins his his uh, that book that I just held up. He says, "For at least a thousand years, the Bible was, for practical purposes, the only book known to people in Europe. They didn't have it in their hands before the days of printing. Of course, they knew it through the teaching of the church." through its readings, its preaching, its liturgy, its sacraments, through the cycles of the seasons of the Christian year, through art, music, and architecture. The story told by the Bible was a story by which people understood the meaning of their lives. That's what we're dealing with. That's what the Bible is. And if you spend some time in the Bible, it's you actually pick up on this pretty quick if you really spend time with it. I know sometimes we think we've spent a lot of time with it. But uh, Leslie Newbigin is the same person who you'll notice in the worship guide there's a quote from a Hindu scholar that said this to, to Leslie Newbigin who was, a, who was a missionary in India. He said, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. In anyway, we have plenty of books on religion in India. We don't need any more. I find your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. This is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. And Newbegin goes on to explain that himself, and he says, He says, The Bible is not a book of religion, which encourages us to turn away from the down-to-earth business of ordinary life, Just think about if that's close at all to your perspective or if you've seen that perspective at work before, which encourages us not to turn away from the down-to-earth business of ordinary life, from our responsibilities as actors in history. It does not encourage us to turn away from the world of our daily newspaper to a so-called spiritual world beyond. It is rather an interpretation of the whole of history from the creation to its end. And of, ev- and of the human story within that creation. Okay. I have a, another thing I was going to read opening up, but I'm just doing too much reading here of, of text. So let me just get on with the point. As we get into the first part of this story, as we get into creation, there's some important things to figure out. There's some baseline sort of worldview questions to probe into and just, just, just puzzle over so this is, a, this is a great question a great way to start in terms of um, entering into this uh... story at the very beginning here's the question what do you think is more basic to our world good or bad what is more basic to our world What is more essential what is more germane to this world that we live in is it good Or is it bad? Or are you kind of like, oh, they're equal, kind of a yin and the yang kind of thing? What's more basic? Surprisingly, you know how you answer that question, even though you probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but you do actively have an answer to it. And that answer directs a lot of your behavior and your response to what happens in this world. And The Bible, I'll just do it like a little spoiler. So the Bible, if you look at Genesis, if you look at the very beginning of this story, and that's what we're talking about today, you notice a couple of things. You notice goodness and harmony. First of all, there's a harmony. I mean, I don't know if you've spent some time with Genesis chapter 1. It comes off not so much like history writing or like historical narrative or historical reporting. It comes off more like a poem or like a song. And then Genesis 2 takes over and and it kind of switches. It turns into more of a historical reporting type of view of how the world started, but not Genesis 1. It's dealing more with just giving us a a, a song of the the picture of harmony and goodness. And so you see this number seven. There's seven days. It's the number of perfection in the ancient world. And then as you read, it, it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I'm just reading a tiny bit. I won't read the whole thing. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Over and over again as you read this, there's repetition, just like there is in any song, bringing out the point. And the repetition goes like this. And God saw that it was good, And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, over and over again. It was good. It was good. It was good. God saw that it was good. And finally, he says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You know, Genesis chapter 1 doesn't answer a lot of how questions. How was it created? That seems to be what we get obsessed with. How long did it take? Was evolution involved? We get into all these questions. That's not really what it's dealing with. It's a song. It's telling us more about the purpose. It's telling us about the quality. There's goodness. It was good. It was created good. There's like this, I would call it a repeating doxology. A doxology is sort of... Uh, something that where you speak these words or you sing these words over something or to someone giving praise, words of praise. It is good. It is good. It is good. That's a repeating doxology. What's more basic, good or evil? You see the Bible's answer. Um, It sounds like a philosophical question, but really it's extremely practical. And your answer to that question is already directing how you live. Let me... Get into that. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Um, we're going to learn in a second that even cell phones were created good. So, just so you know. Um, what happens when uh, you, you open up the paper and it says, oh, there was a bombing at the Boston Marathon? what happens when uh, you hear over the news there's a shooting in Newtown and, and kindergartners were killed what happens what's really fascinating is that you don't say I've never heard anybody hear something like that and react just absolutely stoic and say oh ah, yeah another shooting another bombing I mean that's you know we hear about these all the time here's another one I wonder what was behind that one that was kind of interesting I don't, I don't hear anyone react that way. What do we do? We say, why? We say, I can't believe that. It's horrible. That shouldn't happen. Why? Um, when there's war and injustice, and when we learn that, you know, our government has been using waterboarding, kind of torture to to get answers out of people, when there's injustice, when there's abuse, you know, we, we have activism, and we have legislation, and we have protests, Why do we do all of that? Today I I don't want you to puzzle over the existence of evil evil and bad. I want you to puzzle over the fact that we react so strongly to it. Ever since I was born, for 35 years, the newspaper has been relentlessly trying to prove to me that evil and bad are at home in this world. Why is it that I continue consistently to say no? (laughs) No. Please let the world not be that way. I think we can change this. I think we can do something. That's awful. Why? Why did that happen? That's my response. Why do we respond that way? Where does that come from? The Bible would say that you are part of a story. And you can't get rid of the fact that you are part of a story. You you can't shake it. It's just a part of you. It's deep in your bones. It's in your heart. And because of that story, you have this sense... Inside of you, like a memory imprint, that there's a chapter of that story when everything was good. There's almost like a little shadow of a memory that you have that you just instinctively act upon that says, No, 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 we are made for better than this. Part of entering into the big story is just to puzzle over where that comes from and to, and to wonder why is that there? And then as you begin to maybe try to act out on that imprint and say, yes, we are created for better than this. I'm going to live like we're created for better than this. What is included in that? I just kind of joked about, you know, even cell phones are part of the created order. Um, But what is all included in the good creation category? In Colossians 1, which James just read, it says... IN VERSE 16, FOR IN HIM ALL THINGS WERE CREATED, THINGS IN HEAVEN AND THINGS ON EARTH, VISIBLE AND INVISIBLE, WHETHER THRONES OR POWERS OR RULERS OR AUTHORITIES, ALL THINGS WERE CREATED THROUGH HIM AND FOR HIM. NOTICE IT LISTS THRONES, RULERS, POWERS, AUTHORITIES. THOSE THINGS WEREN'T IN THE ORIGINAL SONG OF CREATION. THOSE THINGS WEREN'T LISTED. THOSE THINGS DIDN'T IMMEDIATELY EXIST WHEN GOD CREATED. WHAT WE GET IS THE STORY, THE CREATING ACTION OF GOD CONTINUES TO UNFOLD. IT'S AN ONGOING ACTION. GOD IS creating. And even all these things that kind of pop up and come out of the created order because of human ingenuity and society and culture, all of it, according to how the Bible treats our world, all of that is part of the goodness of the created order. All of it. We look around us, and it's all around us. And then you begin to imagine the implications. It gets really big. It gets really. Sometimes it gets a little troubling, but it's all around us. It's constant. You start to sit in line at the DMV, and you say somehow this is part of the created order of goodness. Is there goodness here? You stand in line, check out line at the supermarket. You know, you think of, you know, you start going through all these things. You say, this is part of created goodness. there's created goodness here. There's created goodness in landlords, you know, in video games, politicians. You start thinking about these things differently. It starts to shift your focus. And then you also realize that um, we surprisingly, despite the imprint of goodness that we have, the sense that this world is, is good, we ditch that pretty quickly. And this gets addressed at one point in Scripture when there's some people at, in a church that Timothy is ministering to, and they're doing this. They're kind of saying, they're, they're ditching the created goodness of certain things, and they're, make, they're sort of, kind of saying, well, not, not that. That's, there's, there's no goodness there. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he talks about these people and he says they forbid to marry and they order to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's a very broad-reaching verse. And in many ways, we we do this in all kinds of different ways. Some ways, maybe you've been a part of a tradition uh, or been in a church uh, that has has kind of pushed off to the side certain things and said, no, that's that's a bad thing. That actually creates... There's nothing good there. One of these writers that I just mentioned, um, Al Walters, says in his book, um, that there's all kinds of worldviews and religions and philosophies that single out some feature or features of the created order as the cause of the human predicament. Whether that be the body, temporality, finitude, emotionality, authority, rationality, individuality, technology, culture, and on and on and on. We, we find something we say, no, that can't be good in that book that I referenced, uh, the true story of the whole world. This is what those authors say. They say, But sin cannot destroy the goodness of creation outright. Rather, it twists and distorts. I like that image. We have a goodness that's twisted, that's distorted. For example, sin doesn't destroy sexuality, but perverts it, turning it toward adultery and other exploitative relationships. Sin doesn't destroy the state, but twists it away from public justice. Sin doesn't destroy human reason but turns it towards evil and selfish ends. We cannot blame any part of the good creation for the mess we are in. Government, the economy, schools, authority, technology, all these are part of a created order that was made good. But all have become twisted, corrupted, polluted, and distorted by human rebellion against the Creator. We've just got to be careful about that. And then also to see not just what not to do, not just to not... Put things aside and say that's not good, but also to have a certain attitude to all that's around us, to sort of start to feel this shift that you can have towards all the good things that are around you. It's a key shift, I think, in um, having a comprehensive kind of Christian faith. So, one of these authors, uh, Al Walters again, says that the Christian can begin to see possibilities for service to God in such areas as politics and the film arts, and computer technology, uh, and business administration, and developmental economics, and skydiving. I love it that he throws that one in there. If God does not give up on the works of his creation, we may not either. There's a shift that needs to happen. That shift that happens and can happen over and over again with all kinds of things in your life imagine getting that slip in the, in the mail that says, you have jury duty, right? How many times have you heard someone be grouchy and complain about, I have jury duty? And you sort of make that shift and you go, okay, where is the created goodness in this? Um, I know some of you love jury duty, that's fine, but usually I hear complaining. Where is the created goodness in this that I need to embrace and that I also become a, sort of an agent in bringing to light even more. Is that what it means to be a Christian? What would our world look like if that's what it was to be a Christian? To get back to that created goodness when you're you know, working as a temp for six months or a year or a year and a half. When you're working somewhere as an intern and just trying to figure things out. When you're taking some kind of medication that has all these side effects when you're changing a diaper, when you're logging receipts, when you're paying for a smog check. All these instances where you say, hmm, where's, let's get out there, let's discover the created goodness here, and is there any way that I can kind of move with the flow of the created goodness of standing in line at a food bank? And it also puts a whole new lens on your career or on the station in life which you find yourself that you look at this and you say, I mean, you know how many people have said, I hate my job, or I hate those people at work, or let me tell you about this pet peeve. It just kind of shifts all of that and says, well, of course it's twisted, of course it's screwed up, but let's discover the created goodness here. Where do I need to discover and embrace and bring out even more the created goodness of this particular sphere of God's created order? And that shift is what the Bible is after. It's what this whole story is after. As God makes a way for you to come back again and live under his doxology. It is good. There's this way in which the whole rest of the story that we're going to see over the next three weeks is just God's way of bringing us back to live under that original doxology. It is good. In fact, even the doxology, applied to yourself. You are good. And if you want to get a sense of just how good that goodness is for us, for you and me, then you realize you have to realize and look at how in Genesis chapter 1 we have, in, in verse 2 it's saying that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We have God speaking and God deciding and sort of speaking for the world to exist, but it's not just Him that is doing it. There's also the words, His speech that brings about this creation. It's as if... The words themselves have a functional, powerful personality to them. And we learn in John chapter 1 in the New Testament when John says, well, the Word was with God in the beginning. And then he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And you kind of go, aha. See, the Spirit was there. The Father was there. The Son was there. Even then at this creation moment, and the only way really to explain Genesis 1, that it's even happening, and the Christian story explains it this way, is that here you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they operate together. They operate in a sort of community of oneness, a sort of multiplicity of unity. And in that relationship there is, the Bible tells us, there's this constant unselfish love-giving and love-receiving, glory-giving and glory-receiving. And that's this beautiful, selfless, love-giving community that exists. Why does Genesis 1 happen? In order to expand that circle of love and let more in. See, already there's a sense of deep, Grace, even before, um, of you know, grace being something that didn't even need to happen, but it happens anyway. That we're made in order to be brought into that love-giving circle. And Genesis one says, "Man and woman were made in the image of God." They're brought in. They're brought in. We are. I mean, no wonder, think about it. No wonder that imprint is so strong and intense in us that that this world is supposed to be so good. No wonder that's so strong and lasting because we were made to be in this love-giving, unselfish relationship with God himself. Man, we have a sense of that. We know that. And there's good news as well to this the good news, the good news is that you see in Colossians chapter 1 that James read if you continue we didn't read all this but if you continue then verse 19 says this for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven making peace through his blood shed on the cross See, God's bringing us back to that circle of love. God's bringing us back to living in, under the doxology of God. It is good. It is good. It is very good. You are good. Do you ever realize that you're living your life in a sort of search for goodness or a search for someone to say that you are good? or some group of people to say that you are good. You're living as if you hope that finally you'll find the doxology to live under that will lift you back up to what you have some sense that you are worth or that you're capable of. I mean, how much of your life is spent trying to figure out, am I good enough? The Bible says, yeah, you're made for that. You're made to live under God's doxology, and that explains a lot. It explains why a teenage girl whose parents raised her right gave her all the opportunities and all the attention and support and all the rules and advice as she's just given herself over to a new group of friends and their style of clothes and their genre of boyfriends with their sexual expectations and their variety of parties and their recreational version of drug use. She might not feel very good, but those friends say she's good and they treat her like she's good. And that doxology of her friends is going to have to do the job for now. Living under God's doxology, that's what we were made for. It explains a lot. It explains the 38-year-old husband and father who is spiraling downhill for no real obvious reason at all. But if you connect the dots, which he hasn't yet, you can see it happening. He's drunk now almost Every night and a lot of days, too, his attitude towards his once precious bride is now almost thoroughly negative and more and more emotionally abusive. And while she's tending to the twins, he may or may not be out spending the last of their very little extra cash on what will get him numb tomorrow to the growing sense that his life has not turned out good. And there's a voice in his head continually condemning him, and he's tired of hearing that voice. And perhaps if a stronger, more authoritative, yet gentle voice could override that inner voice he has and say to him convincingly, I have made you good. You are so good. It just might break the cycle if, he, if that voice could break through. Have you spent some time trying to prove that you are good? And, you know, whose doxology are you spending time living under and hoping will be enough and will have to do the job for now? When you look at the Bible, you see this amazing concept in verse 20 of Colossians 1 that God actually comes and sends the word again, that good creating word. He sends the word again. And Jesus comes in this language of making peace through his blood. That's what he came to do. To bring us back to that peaceful state, he takes on the bad so that you can return again to the love circle of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that you can live under God's doxology again. That's the gospel, friends. That's what Jesus offers you. I know you maybe thought today walking into this place you kind of come in with this default drive of the human heart. I'm going to do something that makes me good enough for God. Or I'm going to just, am, am, is the rest of my life going to be keep wondering, is God happy with me or not? Have I done enough because of this thing that happened or this bad funk that I've been going through or this, you know, stuff back here that I still can't let go of or this thing that happened yesterday? Is all of that what God's looking at? And the answer to the Bible is no. He made it so that you can be good again despite your best efforts to tell him otherwise. Will you accept that grace and enter into this story today? Let's pray and hope that we can. Dear God, I, we invite you to help make this story real for us and to bring us into it more and more each day. What a tough thing to believe that despite the twistedness and distortion and mess that we feel that you have declared through your son It is good again, and you're making all things new, starting with us. Convince our hearts that we have been made good before you so that we can go out and keep discovering and embracing and nurturing the goodness in the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.